Good evening, church. Um, wait. All right. Praying for um, Pat to get better. Ken is taking over for Pat tonight, and he wants me to go really fast to see if he can keep up with Pat. <laughs> um, we're going to Luke chapter 10 is our first scripture tonight. Uh, Eat the East Homer Church of Christ sends his greetings to you. It was a good uh, opportunity down there to encourage them and to receive encouragement from them. Okay, so we started off, we were talking last week, um, we're picking up this week with figures of speech, right? Let's Let's grab some, some figures of speech. So we're looking at the scriptures. Let's start with the easy and then we'll move to a little, little more, uh, those are a little more difficult. Uh, a parable. Very easy, right? A parable is simply a, it's a normal, real life illustration, story, um, that it, it presents a moral truth. So a parable is, is written to, to relate to, to everyone of all times. So Jesus used about 30 parables in uh, in the New Testament, we're going to look at Luke uh, chapter ten because it's one that um, that we we really are familiar with. Verse verse thirty, the the Good Samaritan. So let's think about now how would this parable, how could it relate to us? How has it been able to relate to all peoples, all all over the world, right? For the last. 1900 plus years. Verse 30. Jesus replied and said, A certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went off, leaving him half dead. Well, it automatically starts with, Yep, this happens everywhere, right? <laughs> everywhere. There are thieves and robbers everywhere of all time never going to go away. So Jesus' parable begins very, very uh, valid in a valid way for the world to see. So here's the relationship. Verse 31, And by chance a certain priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. So how often do we see that? Right? In America, what do we have? That Good Samaritan Law, right? If it still exists, I guess it does. Where, you know, if someone's hurt or injured, you know, or there's some robbery going on, and you I mean, you're supposed to stop and help. You're obligated to stop and help uh, and to do something. We don't just leave people by themselves. Especially, I love, one of the things I love about Alaska is that, uh, you know, especially that, that great rule down in, in the, on the peninsula, you don't, you don't leave people out in, like, in this kind of weather. Um, and, and even if you're driving down to um, Kenai or down at home or there's a car on the side of the road and it flashes on, and you, see, you know what's going to happen, that you know, something really horrible can happen to them. So we don't leave them on the side of the road. We pull over and we help the best way that we can. So some people have what verse 33 says, compassion. And some do not. Some care. Some do not care. The, the deeper message to the Christian is which 
person should we be in the parable, right? Continuously, right? We should be the Samaritan, the good Samaritan. The world should never be more compassionate and kind and generous and gentle than God's people. But what happens in this parable? In this parable, the world demonstrates itself uh, as being more kind and gentle and generous and compassionate, meaning the Samaritan versus the so-called religious person or the leader of uh, the Jewish nations. Verse 34, he came upon him to a banquet, excuse me, and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own breast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. Which of these two, or three rather, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And so, uh, who is my neighbor? Right? Justification. Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Well, God makes it clear uh, who our neighbors are. Verse 37 he said to them, the one who showed mercy toward him, and Jesus said to him, go and do the same. So think about the church now. The church, a, a, a body of believers that are good Samaritans toward each other, right? Fulfills Romans 12, 9 through 21, fulfills Philippians 2, 3 and 4. It fulfills all these scriptures that are in the Bible that God tells us to be uh, gentle and kind to one another. Matt? Mark chapter 12, love God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength and love your neighbor as you love yourself. So to be a people of love is what God expects of us. So he tells his parable, and the parable demonstrates what God expects his people to be, concerned about every member of the body of Christ, even the one who falls by robbers, right? Romans 12 says to weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn, you know, be there for one another. Look at uh, Matthew chapter 13. I just want to give you uh, these two examples and then look at what are, a, what are one-liner parables. We'll look at that in just a second. Matthew 13 and verse 31. He presented another parable to them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his own field. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but... When it is full grown, it is larger than the golden plants, the garden plants, uh, and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. And so the idea that all are invited to Jesus, all are invited to the kingdom of heaven, and how huge, how massive God's kingdom is uh, to this day. And it started with just one little seed, right? That seed of Christ. It started with one small seed, and it's flourished and grown to this amazing, uh, you know, amazing kingdom of God today. Okay, Matthew 5. He also told parables that are like, like just, just one-liners. Okay, verse 13. And you're familiar with it. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, <clears throat> how will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. So we understand the reality of salt and how, how important it is when we're eating a, a dish. Uh, what about in people's lives? So think about that in relationship to a human being. 
that God says you Christians are the flavor of the world. You're it. You're the reason that this world is still going. You are the reason that God has not destroyed the whole earth. There are people out there who are um, desirous of salvation, and you are the ones to bring that message to them, that message of Jesus. But if you being the salt fall away from Christ, you become tasteless. You're no longer useful to the master. Think about that. In fact, it says you're good for nothing. You see? So Jesus wants us to remain faithful and flavorful, if you will, flavorable to the world so that the world might receive the goodness of God. And then there's so many lessons that follow with that being the salt of the earth and he goes to the, the light of the world and then he goes to being hot or cold. I mean, there's so many messages that, that link this uh, connection, this connective thought together all throughout the Bible, right? Look at chapter 7. Let's look at one more one-liner, and then let's leave parables. Matthew 7 and verse 6. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. How many times have you run into people who've taken a scripture um, and used it in the most horrible way? You know, it's, it's, it's applicable when used properly, but dangerous when outside of that. Like an example, um, some marriages, a person is not careful who they marry. And they marry someone outside of the body of Christ. Um, and then that person says, says a horrible husband, and he refuses to change. And he says, well, I know one thing. You can't divorce me unless I commit adultery. And therefore, I'm going to live however I want and do whatever I want. And now you're my servant for life, right? Horrible. I've seen that. I don't know if you've ever seen that before. It's just ideas like that, you know, as far as taking a scripture, whether in context, out of context, even interpreted wrongly, uh, in a wrong way, uh, they'll still use those ideas against you. And so you're very, very careful with casting your pearl before the swine. All right, fables. Turn to Second Kings chapter 14. A fable. In action or uh, a thing that is said, um, it's a story, and it, it has a purpose to teach a, um, a very good, strong, moral lesson. I've already always kind of liked this one. I thought it was interesting in the way that, um, that, it, that it comes about. So I wanted to use this tonight. Second Kings chapter 14. Let's go down to verse 8. Then Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, Come, let us face each other. And Jehoash, king of Israel, sent to Amaziah, king of Judah, saying, The thorn bush, which was in Lebanon, sent to the cedar, which was in Lebanon, saying, Give your daughter to my son in marriage. But there passed by a wild beast, that was in Lebanon and trampled the thorn bush. You have indeed defeated Edom, and your heart has become proud. Enjoy your glory and stay at home, for why would you provoke trouble so that you, even you, should fall and Judah with you? So here he is telling us, you know, this, this story about a, a thorn bush, and he's saying uh, in the parable that you know, if you're going to go up against a cedar, which is a huge tree, 
and you're just a thorn bush, you might want to rethink that. It'd be like me going up to Shaq and saying, okay, I'll pick you up first and throw you across the room, and then you pick me up second. And then he would say, well, the thorn bush said to the cedar. You know, so it's a story, uh, if you will, that's trying to get a point across. So fables are used throughout the scriptures. Uh, the intention in the fable is to teach a moral lesson. And this lesson was stay at home, right? Um, honor God and don't do this. Is not a good idea. The next one is, so I, I want to go to Revelation 13. Um, and that's, not, uh, that's not on our slides. Um, Revelation 13, verse 2. I think this is probably the greater similes um, are found in Revelation and Zechariah and, uh, and parts of the book of Daniel and Ezekiel. And so when you get to a simile, you, you got to remember it's, it's being something that is like or as uh, something of a different kind of quality. It's a simile, right? And when you, we get into the book of Revelation, part of the uh, struggle that people have is they take things literal and they, they miss the simile that God has given to us. When God says, it was like this or as that. And people even say, um, well, let's just read the verse. Verse 2, Revelation 13 and verse 2. It says, And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth was like uh, the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. So now when we're reading Revelation 13 too, is God saying that this is exactly what it is, or that it was like one thing or another, right? That tells us, okay, this, this type of language is not to be taken literally, right? This is figurative speech. And so you don't take it literal. And uh, so many people look through the book of Revelation and they read the scriptures and they miss uh, the similes that are being used. And that's part of God's design in the book of Revelation. But they miss it. And when you miss it, you find yourself in trouble misinterpreting the scripture. Turn to Matthew chapter 3. So it's a thing or an, or an action that's said to be like or, or as something of a different kind or quality. So the baptism of Jesus, Matthew chapter 3 and verse 16. And being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him. So was the Holy Spirit a dove or coming down as a dove, right? That's, so we, we catch that simile and we say, oh, okay, that's, that's great. I got that one. Hold on to it. And so we don't want to misapply what the Scripture is saying about the Holy Spirit. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18. A great scripture about reasoning together uh, here. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. So God, again, in this, in this simile, is giving us a comparative idea. Um, turn to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. All of these, uh, you know, um, types of, of figures of speech have to be thought about when you're reading or I identifying a scripture 
in its depth. And so you identify what kind of, what kind of speech is being used by God so we can make the proper application. So we're talking about studying, right? Not reading. How to study and understand the Bible. It can go very, very, very deep. This is why it can go very, very deep. Because one verse will mean, uh, well, it means exactly what it says. But you need to pick out of that, you know, what the Scripture is really trying to give us and make sure you don't get mixed up with the figurative language that may be given to us. Um, Verse 6 says, All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So we, similarly, the similarity, are like sheep. We have gone astray like sheep. And so that tells me, well, if I want to understand what God is saying about sheep, I ought to go study sheep. And then when you start studying sheep, you find that sheep often do what? Go astray. They get lost, you know. And one of the most um, humbling things I've learned in my study on sheep, because I figure if you're going to be a preacher, uh, if you're going to be an elder, uh, or you need to probably do what the Bible's, you probably need to try to understand what Jesus is saying. So you need to go study sheep. And being as though I, I was, I'm, you know, I wasn't a, grow, I didn't grow up on a farm as a shepherd. I didn't know a whole lot about sheep. I knew a little bit about sheep. And then I started learning about sheep. And guess what I learned? You already know this. They're the dumbest animals on earth. <laughs> That's kind of humbling. <laughs> uh, wait a minute. What do you mean, Lord, they're the dumbest? And they're not very smart. They get lost so easily. They're, they're, they're not. They're, wow. And I, and I was, you know, and I thought, them, wait a minute. That's, we're not like, we're not, I'm, I'm not, I'm, oh, wait a minute. I guess I, oh, wow, wait. How many times have I loved my sin more than I love God? Right? It's not just talking about falling away. It's talking about choosing Satan over God. How many times have I chosen Satan over God? Oh. How many times have I been caught in Satan's trap? And I've been caught in that same trap before. <laughs> it just goes on and on. And you study sheep and you realize that, yeah, they're not, they're not the sharpest animals, right? And so then I have to humbly admit what? That Jerry Mammon's a sheep. <laughs> oh, well, sorry, that I'm a sheep. <laughs> I have to humbly admit that I'm a sheep. Can you do that? And then I love the elders, right? Elders are sheep leading sheep. I just love it. I always thought about that. That's kind of funny. Here we are. We're just sheep. So who's the chief shepherd? Jesus. So the idea is everyone and everything must be streamlined to Jesus. We point everything to Jesus, right? Everyone's pointed to Jesus, and that's the only way we're going to make it. And so uh, sheep, what a a great um, idea that God gave to us to use that particular animal to describe us. And so when we ask the question, you know, why does so-and-so do that? Because we're sheep. That's not an excuse, but it's a reality. Right? So when you're home, go home and Google sheep. Just Google them. Just look at you. You'll laugh, I'm telling you. You will be like, wow, really? You know, but God knows us better than we know ourselves, doesn't he? So humility is the key to spirituality. You want to learn how to become more and more spiritual? Be humble. How humble? As humble as you possibly can, can become. Because that's truly what God expects of us. And he uses a goat to lead us along. If you look, you, know, you go back and you study anyway. It's a great, it's a great study about human nature and, and self. And so once um, I began to understand sheep, that's what helped 
me in ministry, right? Because I started learning about me. When I started learning about me, I started realizing, understanding why I can do some of the things that I do or think some of the things I think or fall the way I fall or whatever it is that may happen in my life because, well, I truly, sincerely, tremendously need the good shepherd, Jesus, in my life every day to shepherd me along the way, right? Okay. Um, Luke chapter 13. Some folks, when I started really studying and digging on this, that idea, and I had to dig a lot, a lot in the Old Testament because they were, you know, a lot of shepherds in the Old Testament. And I started explaining that. A lot of Christians got really offended. You know, what do you mean? You're telling us we're, we're, we're stupid? And I go, well, I mean, you still sin against God? Well, me, well, there you go. <laughs> I don't need to finish the rest of the sentence. Why would I choose Satan over God? Because right? I'm a sheep. Uh, okay. Um, so a word or a phrase, meta- a metaphor. A word or a phrase which is said to be something um, else because of a likeness that is involved in, in the text. So Luke uh, chapter 13. It's calling one thing by another word, but it's, but it's more descriptive and figurative. Could you, you almost could say when Revelation says Babylon the Great and it's speaking of Rome, it, it could be a metaphor, but, and it really is a metaphor, but Rome, Rome was worse than Babylon. Uh, but Babylon had its really horrible points as well, but it's kind of the same idea. But Luke 13 and verse 31. Just at that time, some Pharisees came up saying to him, Go away and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today, and tomorrow in the third day I reach my goal. And so, you know, a fox is this, this slippery, you know, sly creature. And he's saying that's what Herod is. Herod is a slippery, sly, conniving creature. So he calls him a fox. And so he used a metaphor uh, for him. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 26. And then you go study the Herods. Well, if you study the Herods, you have to really, there are a lot of Herods in the Bible that are different. So you have to figure out which Herod uh, he's speaking of. Matthew 26 and verse, speaking of the Lord's Supper, uh, verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And so the bread through the eyes of faith is the body of Christ, right? So what has happened with this metaphor? Well, um, around four, 500 A.D. or so, maybe it's a little bit later than that, excuse me. Let me not give you a date on that because I don't remember exactly. The word transubstantiation is a newer word that describes what Catholicism practices. And that is that when you... Did you spell that one? <laughs> okay. It's a, it's a word that, that um, means you take the bread, and while it's in the, on the plate, if you will, or on, in the dish, it's just bread. But then when you break it off and put it in your mouth, it transforms into the actual literal body of Jesus Christ. And then the, the wine transforms into the actual blood of Jesus Christ. It, so... The term transubstantiation becomes, it's, it's, you know, the word that they use. 
And, and the problem is, this was, it was a metaphor. So it's through the eye of faith that the bread is the body of Jesus Christ. I, I, I would even dare not say it represents. I, I don't usually like to use that word, but uh, yeah, it's fine. I like to use the idea that it's through the eye of faith. It's exactly what Jesus said it was. Right? It is the bread, I mean, the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus. And so he uses that metaphor. Um, let's go all the way over to Ephesians, probably your favorite chapter, chapter 6, verse 11, the weapons of war. And let's look at the allegory that uh, God uses. So an allegory is, is a metaphor is extended into a complete story to illustrate some truth. And, and the writer, he doesn't identify all the particular parts, but he, but he, he leaves the reader to infer some truths in there. So we're looking at an allegory now. So an allegory is going to infer some real, deep, impactful truths, right? So we'll start at verse, um, verse 10, verse 11, I think it's going to come up on the screen. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Verse 11, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And so there's this physical action that's going to happen. So the inference is there's some literal armor that we're going to put on that that isn't it's not really literal armor is it but it actually is it's in the mind isn't it right and we have to do something we we are at battle so we have to be willing to fight but whatever you do do not fight without putting on the full armor first right because you can't beat satan only god can right but god with us we win right we defeat satan so he says you need to put this armor on for a reason so that you will be able to stand firm against the wiles or the schemes of Satan. Now, interestingly enough, um, how do you find uh, out the schemes of Satan? Because it's interesting how it tells us in that very verse right there, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. How do we know what his schemes are? So you go all the way back to the Old Testament and you start picking them out. Right? And there's just tons of them. And as you read, and they're not, they're not like a, too many to remember, but you start remembering or seeing, okay, what are his schemes? What does he do? And we start learning in the Old Testament what tricks Satan used to trick people, God's people. And it's interesting that when you get into the New Testament, they're the same tricks, the same schemes, the same um, uh, ways that he misleads people, right? So the first way he does it is talking about the biggest scheme. Um, it's, it's very easy to get mixed up with uh, who it is in the battle uh, or on the battlefield of whom we're fighting. Who are we fighting? Are we fighting each other or are we fighting Satan? Oh, but how easy it is to confuse this and say, no, we're fighting one another. No, we're not. And if we don't get that in our head, we've fallen for the biggest trick of Satan. We're not fighting each other. We're not. We're fighting Satan. So where do you start with that whole idea of this scheme? Where does it begin? All the way back to the beginning. Cain and Abel. Right? Those two brothers fought over what? Over, you know, the sacrifice. God being pleased. God not being pleased. But if you remember, when you study Cain and Abel, Abel's offering had nothing to do with Cain's offering. Nor did Cain's offering have anything to do with uh, Abel's offering, they were two separate offerings. The problem was God's choice, right? 
God's choice through, and it says faith, so we know God gave a law, because uh, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So God gave a law, and Cain chose to go against that law. And he thought he could find something better to give God than what God had commanded, and God had no delight. And so Cain automatically made Abel his target. And the Bible tells us, here's one of Satan's schemes, that Satan tricks us into believing that mankind is our enemy. Man's not our enemy. Satan uses man, and man allows Satan to use them, but Satan is the actual enemy. Verse 12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And so we have this, this understanding that, yeah, we are at war. What often happens is, as humans, we forget the fact that every day we're fighting against whom? Satan. Every day. Every day, there's good versus evil. Right? Every single day. And then every day, we are uh, placed in a position, uh, either through choice or circumstance, or just, just life, to make choices good versus evil. Oftentimes, those decisions that we make uh, are, are brought about to us through the agency of mankind, right? People. So here's what happens. We have a message of good news. Satan has a message of what? Bad news, right? So we can either carry Satan's message and use whatever is before us or the opportunities that are before us, or we can use Satan, uh, God and use the opportunities that are before us and the words that are before us. It's a choice that we make every day, but the battle is still against Satan, Right? Jesus showed us that in Luke 4 and in Matthew 4. He went out and he was tempted by whom? By the devil, right? So he fought the devil using Scripture, the good, versus the evil. So put on the full armor of God because we cannot win without uh, the battle or the, win the battle without the armor of God. So here's this allegory that Jesus is giving to us uh, by way of inspiration. Verse 13. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Now, resist. Am I resisting my evil cravings? So now we've got to kind of get rid of Satan for a moment and remember what James taught us and what Jesus taught us, that the evil comes from here, right? Isn't that interesting? It's, it doesn't come from, from Satan. It actually originates up here. So in my thinker, is where all this crazy stuff is. And i got to figure out how to eliminate it. And I have to learn how to suppress the bad stuff that's up here. Where did I get all this bad stuff up here? Bad company, right? Bad everything. Anything that I'm around that's bad and wicked and evil. Uh, upbringing, situations in life, um, struggles, difficulties. Uh, some of the uh, things that happen just as a part of, of humanity and society. The news, the you name it. You get all this bad stuff up here, and as God's people, we're supposed to learn to resist and suppress that stuff, right? Suppress it, push it deep, you know, because we know we suppress because the Bible talks about the old man and the new man, and he talks about the new man taking over the old man, but the old man coming back to life. He says, don't do that. Don't bring him back. You know, you're driving down the street and someone pulls you over and some of the bad stuff begins to enter your mind that you want to say, but you know you can't, right? You've got to suppress that further and further down in, into your heart. So this allegory is bringing to us this amazing 
relationship uh, in, in the scriptures of what we need to do every single day. So I'm fighting against myself, right? My own stuff. And I'm fighting against the evil stuff all around me. And I'm trying to suppress and I'm trying to resist. And I can't do all that without the armor of God. So you have to have this, this shield of faith, this uh, full body armor, so that when you hear, what about when you hear the Lord's name used in vain, or you hear curse words, or, or you, you know, you, whatever you hear, you've got to learn how, oh, no, I don't want that. You've got to learn how to resist those things, but you have to identify them, right? How often have you watched a show, and my wife and I talk about that. We're like, did you, you know, did you miss that? I'm like, well, yeah, I missed it. What did I miss? Did you miss that? Whatever was going on. Well, that tells me if I'm missing it, now maybe my heart's become hardened or, or it, it's not sensitive any longer. I've lost my, the sensitivity, et cetera, et cetera. I've got to be very careful with digging through the trash to find good, right? There's good out there. I don't have to dig through the trash to get. So then verse 14 says, Stand firm, therefore hovering, having girded your loins with, uh, with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And by the way, we're just touching the surface because we can go really, really deep with each point, right? Stand up. Be counted, right? Stand up. Put on your armor and stand up. Stand up proud like a soldier would stand up, you know, for an inspection. Stand up ready to fight. Stand up. Stand up because uh, it's valid and important that we stand up and stand firm and we're girded. You have to be girded about. Verse, the next verse, verse uh, 15, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel well, you, of peace. You got to cover your feet because in a battle in their days, what would happen? Right? They'd stab you in the foot, right? So if you got armor on your foot, you're protected from head to toe, you know. So God says you got to protect everything. He gave the analogy, if your foot causes you to sin, Cut it off, your hand. I mean, we, get, we understand what you know, Jesus is using figures of speech there. But the idea is you've got to be covered up because Satan will find a way if you want him to, if you give that opportunity to him. And then it goes on in verse 16. In addition to all, taking up the shield of the faith with which you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one. And so if you were back in those days, Rome would... would uh, put fire on their darts and uh, their arrows and they would shoot them at you and you had that nice leather, that uh, proper shield. You could ward off that enemy's uh, darts that would come or arrows that would come at you. And God is saying, this is what Satan is doing. He's always shooting something at us. Right? It's interesting with the idea of Satan. When you study Satan, um, as you study about Satan in the scriptures, we learn that a lot of things in life really have evil, have nothing to do with Satan. It's just the fact that you have the opposite of good. And then people choose that opposite. And so it's evil. So there's good and there's evil. Anything that's called evil, we call Satan. But the reality is it's just evil. It's that which is contrary to that which is good. So one must have his head covered, right, to keep all that bad stuff out the helmet what is it verse uh, 17 the helmet of salvation the soul of the spirit which is the word of god you got to have all of that right every single day if we're going to fight satan well what is god telling us every day you're going to go to war every day you're fighting so are you up for the fight you know every morning when you wake up the battle begins because the battle really never ended 
Are you ready for the battle? One more. Uh, Galatians uh, chapter 4. An allegory. Galatians chapter 4. I, I, want, I want to um, you know, just say thank you to you for, for, uh, for being here and, and wanting to talk about these things. You know, class is going to be better one day when we can talk, right? In the, that's just, but this you know, auditorium is kind of difficult, I know that. But to communicate back and forth um, what you're getting from the Word of God, I like to know what you're gaining from what you already know, that maybe I'm stimulating your mind or remind you. So, the greater kingdoms now, greater, the greater kingdoms, um, um, Galatians chapter 4, verse 21, as, a, as an allegory, allegorically speaking, there the, the bond and the free, the bond and the free, woman in particular, it says, tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now, this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. So, wow, okay. It's talking about bond and free Old Testament, New Testament. But it's also being this allegory, this application of being in Christ and being in the world, right? So, in the world, slaves to what? Romans 6, sin. Slaves to sin. But Jesus freed us from sin, right? And so you have this freedom and this, and this slavery. And so maybe in a, in a Bible study, you're talking to someone, you can say, well, this is kind of an allegory, but the idea of being in bondage versus freedom, which one sounds like a better idea to you? Well, I want to be free. Well, the truth shall set you free. And you have to come to Jesus. When you come to Jesus, Jesus frees you. You stay in the world, you remain in slavery, captive, held captive by Satan. So the next one, Verse 26, Jerusalem above. But the Jerusalem above is free. She's our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman, who does not bear. Break forth and shout, You who are not in labor, for more are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And so now there's this huge comparison of the greatness of the kingdom of God, right? And the old, so the old Israel and the new Israel today. Verse 28, And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as, it, as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. So it is now also. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. And so here's the separation that God makes all the way back in Genesis. The separation between those who are free and those who are slaves. It's only in Christ that we can be uh, free and allowed free and no longer held captive. So we'll come back, Lord willing, and pick up 
Uh, I'll be on vacation for a few weeks. So, when, Lord willing, when we come back, we'll pick up where we left off, and we will continue this study. Thank you for your time, and um, appreciate your, your patience with me, and I hope that it's uh, encouraging to you in some way. So thank you. God bless you. We'll have a devotional in just a moment. And those who have uh, a special requests made on, on their heart, they can make that known. And those who are, uh, would like to surrender to God in baptism, we'll have that as well. It's an opportunity for you. God bless you and thank you.